Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Thank you very much. Good, good afternoon, everyone, and, and thank you for joining this afternoon's conference call. I'm James Fotheringham, U.S. Financials Analyst at BMO Capital Markets in New York. I'm here with my great colleague, Sorab Mobahedi, who covers the Canadian banks for our Toronto office, and together we are just delighted to have Sheila Baer here with us for a 45-minute discussion entitled Understanding the Silicon Valley Bank Failure. As I'm sure you all know, Sheila Baer is a former chair of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, better known as the FDIC, and a senior fellow at the Center for Financial Stability. Sheila helped to shepherd the U.S. banking system through its darkest days during the great financial crisis. Consequently, she maintains a very influential voice as it pertains to the development of bank regulation, especially during times of crisis. So it goes without saying that we are deeply appreciative for her being with us today to talk about what the heck happened over the past couple of days, the policy responses to what happened, and the eventual implications of those policy responses for banks in the United States, Canada, and beyond. Sheila, thanks so much for giving us this time. Well, thanks for having me. Excellent. Let's just, if, if it's okay with you, let's let's jump right into questions. Okay. And many thanks to all of you listening uh, who submitted your questions uh, earlier today. So, Sheila, the, the, the past few days have featured U.S. bank runs, bank failures, the collapse of, of broader bank valuations and, and costly policy responses from bank regulators. How did we get here? What, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, I, I do think uh, there's a bit of an overreaction here. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was an unusual bank. So it's a $200 billion bank, not insignificant, but a $23 trillion banking industry. It, not something I would consider a systemic at all. And it had some unusual um, Features. It had a very uh, high reliance of uninsured deposits. It was very concentrated in a, you know, kind of an incestuous community of VCs and their portfolio companies. They all talked to each other and listened to each other. And so word uh, spread pretty fast once uh, some of them started pulling uh, pulling their uninsured deposits out. It was rapid growth. Um, it, it did not, it, it made ill-advised investments in long-term, uh, longer-term uh, government-backed bonds and uh, mortgage-backed securities and amazingly didn't manage the interest rate risk, even though everybody knew <laughs> interest rates were going up. So uh, they, I assume they thought they could hold them to maturity and, and obviously couldn't when the deposit withdrawal started. So I, I, I think there's some unusual things about this bank that doesn't suggest to me that it, it's, it's reflective of anything, any broader problems in the banking system. And I do, I wrote a piece for FT this morning where I, I did take issue somewhat with the systemic risk designation for this and a smaller, even smaller bank signature, um, because it's not clear to me. I think systemic risk determination should be really, you know, things that matter <laughs> throughout the system. And it wasn't at all clear to me that that was the case uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the instance of these two failures. And if, if it was a broader problem, then they should really explore. Uh, there's fast track authority to uh, get for the FDIC to get approval for a broader backstop for uninsured accounts. Uh, that's really what they should explore, not these kind of one-offs. And I mean, in my view, inappropriate use of the systemic, systemic risk designation. 
Um, so I, it's a yeah. good news. I, I don't think there's broader problems with the economy, the banking system. I think this is an overreaction. The, uh, the, the you know things are seem to be calming down now. I think that's uh, that's really due to the Fed's new lending facility, where if you are holding a lot of um, you know um, securities that have lost market value because of rising interest rates, you can post them as collateral, get their full value in, a, in an up to one year loan at a not bad interest rate. And so I think that the ability to access liquidity without having to take marks on these securities that otherwise have lost market value. I think that's the market's taking some confidence uh, in that. So that is helping. Yep. We all saw your FT op-ed today. Perfectly timed. Thank you for that. And we'd encourage anyone who didn't see it to take a look at it for uh, at FT.com. And I, I totally understand and respect your view Um, in terms of the, the responses to, to, to the events just to detail it um, and, and go through some of the things you said, the U.S. government has assured all deposits at the banks that failed. It introduced this new liquidity facility uh, that you referenced that's now available to all banks, and it provided a blanket commitment to address any further liquidity problems. Now, what I want to know is, is is that enough to stem the bank runs? And and what, what do you think would have happened if, if none of these policy responses had been taken? Right. So I'm not sure. I think if uh, I think it's not clear to me that uh, we would have had a problem. I think it's unfortunate that the FDIC wasn't brought in earlier to be able to market this bank and sell it uh, before they had to uh, close it. That was the procedure we used in the vast majority of, of failures um, that we about 400 that we handled under my tenure. They, it was rushed. They didn't have a chance to do that, and so they had to react quickly. And I understand decisions can be. Uh, Tough in that time frame, but I do. These were not systemic banks. Um, these were, it, were. There was no need to, you know, the uninsured depositors. I just, it just, I, I can't believe that anybody would think, unless there's something really, really wrong with their banking system, and I don't think there is. Why the uninsured depositors at two mid-sized banks couldn't take a, you know, a 10, 15 percent, probably at most, haircut on their uninsured deposits? That we had to make have this extraordinary procedure. As I said, I, I think this liquidity facility, um, it did do a lot to staunch any kind of uh, jitters around banks that other banks that might be confronting this unique, well, not a unique problem, but the problem that uh, uh, SVB confronted with unmanaged interest rate risk on a, on a portfolio of securities that have lost market value because of rising interest rates. So I, but I saw some private analysts who had been looking through those and even the number of banks that arguing that situation was not a great number. And here again, the liquidity facility is, is going to be helping them out. Uh, so I'm mixed on that. That's providing system stability. But my guess is BMO and most of the other banks listening here have been managing your interest rate risk. So good for you and taking marks when you should. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> We're going to be bailing out the others. Maybe, yeah, but but uh, for, for overall stability purposes, it's probably a good thing that the Fed opened that facility. You know, you, you, you've made it clear, Sheila, that uh, in your opinion, the systemic provisions probably shouldn't have, they didn't apply here. Uh, I, I guess, right. uh, can you just just talk a little bit about uh, why or wh- why would the regulators have overstepped, I guess, in your opinion? Um, uh, what could they have done differently? And if there are any unintended consequences, uh, that you can mm-hmm. think about uh, yeah. from this policy response. Well, 
Well, they, they did. I think, you know, I think the Fed facilities probably was much more effective, I think, in staunching deposit withdrawals. The uh, doing a systemic risk determination for two banks doesn't really help the other banks. And I think the early response to this was actually we saw even more deposit withdrawal pressure on some other regional banks in the U.S. because people were, you know, confused. They were, you know, what's the systemic risk? You know, what, what else is going on here? So, uh, I, 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 it, it, again, it's, I think, just an orderly following their usual procedures, uh, announcing an advanced dividend for the uninsured deposits, which is what we always did when we had to, when we couldn't, mostly we could sell them, but when we didn't, we did a, a, an immediate dividend of some percentage of the uninsured where we were confident we would have recoveries to cover that, which helped tide over the uninsured with their cash needs. And uh, I think following the FDIC's normal procedures, perhaps combined with the announcement of this facility, would have been fine. But you, we've set a dangerous precedent here. A systemic risk. So are, is everybody $100 billion and above systemic now? And then what happens to the community banks? Are, is it billion-dollar banks systemic? What about their uninsured deposits? These one-off you know, bailouts for individual institutions create all sorts of distortions and expectations that I think are, are potentially undermine the banks that are not beneficiaries of that special, you know, backstop of uninsured deposits, uh, but also creates, you know, could impact uh, market discipline and make uh, banks be even more relaxed. Uh, you know, if, if you're a weekly managed bank already, oh, well, the FDIC is going to bail me out. You know, it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be uncertainty or an assumption that, of a bailout. That's what we saw with the uh, Lehman Brothers situation when Bear Stearns was, was bailed out so early. So, Again, I think the systemic risk determination in, in not following the rules and giving certain banks special deals because supposedly they're systemic, I think that's a terribly dangerous precedent. And I, I know I can only assume that you know this is not a decision by the FDIC. It was the FDIC, the Fed, the Treasury Secretary, and the President all coming together, which, which kind of underscores why <laughs> this is only supposed to be used in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, but I'm scratching my head. I don't think it was necessary. Uh, I, I hope we don't see any more of this. Um, but again, they've set up the expectation, which is going to create even more pressure to do bailouts later on. So, so just following that logic, now that now that assurance has been made to um, to all depositors at SBB and Signature Bank, do you, do you now consider U.S. bank deposits across the system as essentially insured? That is. Should we take it as a given that, that other bank failures that may or may no. not come will have the same FDIC no. insurance guarantee as the two that failed? No, I don't. I don't take it as a given at all. Uh, they, they've got to go. No, they didn't do that. They gave two banks a special deal, and to do any, if they think we're going to continue to have uninsured deposit runs, and, and uh, maybe we won't. This Fed facility may be enough. I'm hoping and praying will be enough to stabilize it. But if they think uninsured uninsured deposit runs, as opposed to individual banks, but uninsured deposit runs are a systemic risk, there is a fast-track procedure. They can go to Congress, get approval to provide a broad temporary backstop for uninsured accounts, at least for transaction accounts. And I think that's what they should do. Uh, no, there's no guarantee. If that's if that's the, the, the perception they were trying to create, uh, I don't know if that's the case at all. Uh, and I don't think the markets or depositors thought that was the case this morning. Again, I think the Fed facility was what uh, calmed things down. Uh, these are one-offs. You know, you've got to get – so just to be clear, 
any other banks that think they're going to get this special deal. You've got to get two-thirds of the FDIC, two-thirds of the Fed, the Treasury Secretary, and the President to all agree that your uninsured depositors need to be bailed out. There's no guarantee that's going to happen anymore or for all banks. I don't think it will. And, and again, what about, are they going to do it for a $5 billion bank, a $10 billion bank, a $500 million bank? There may be small banks that have uh, issues with, with uh, uninsured deposit withdrawals. I don't think, you know, I think that it was hard enough to do it for a $200 and $100 billion bank to make a systemic determination. So no, there's no guarantee. And, uh, and so if people have that perception, I, I don't think it's accurate. And again, the Fed facility is there for liquidity now. If you've got a lot of uh, unmarked losses on your uh, on your securities, you can you can post them and and uh, get a, a fully collateralized loan without haircut. But but uh, and that helps. That will help the liquidity. But no, I, I don't. I, I think people would be ill advised to think that everybody's going to get bailed out now, one by one by one, with the systemic risk determination. I don't think that's realistic. Sheila, you've mentioned, I think, several times that, about the effectiveness and the relevance of the bank term funding program. Um, you know, a bit of a cynical question, I guess. Is there going to be a stigma associated with banks that end up using it? Yeah. Should there be stigma? And what well, sort of disclosures, you know, do you think will be yeah. required to be provided? Well, that's that's a good question, and probably your view on that will depend on whether you think you're going to have to use it or not, right? So, so, um, <laughs> so I think the banks that won't have to use it, they should wear that as a badge of honor. That shows that they really manage their interest rate risk well. If they do have to use it, well, so be it. Maybe that's the uh, what's that's the uh, we just do that and look the other way for system stability. Um, I don't know. I think that's a really tough question. I would say at a minimum, and I said this in my op-ed, and I've been saying it all day. At a minimum, the Fed and other bank examiners should go in there and examine if if these banks, with which large you know large amounts of of unmarked, are because they could be in the hold of maturity if they're in, if they're an AFS too. If they're a smaller bank, they don't have to mark them. So the securities that have lost value that have not yet been marked for accounting purposes, if they had to sell those uh, in on an emergency basis, would they have the capital to absorb it? And if they don't, then then have some good conversations with them about increasing their capital or or uh, taking other uh, corrective steps. So a, a minimum, and that can be part of a confidential supervisory process. But a minimum, I think, uh, bank regulators should do that. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll dodge it and defer to the Fed about what kind of public disclosure <laughs> they want to make around usage <laughs> of the facility. Fair enough. Um, can we sort of move the the topic to moral hazard? Um, you know, the financial system has been bailed out now a few times in recent memory. So, uh, you know, GFC, pandemic, and now this liquidity crisis. Now, when it comes to bank deposits in particular, where does where do you think personal responsibility starts? And where do you think personal responsibility stops with respect to moral hazard? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we have deposit insurance limits for a reason. There, there's some people that don't like deposit insurance at all. They say because of the moral hazard. I, I don't buy that. I think for households, you know, regular Main Street households, they don't have the ability or the time or the acumen to be going in there and looking at banks' financial statements and things. So we need to give them some assurance and peace of mind that they're going to be protected no matter what. And that's so what how we calibrate the insured deposit limits to 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 protect those Main Street households. 
and even in wealthy ones too, I might add, because there are a lot of different ways in terms of how you structure your account to get way more than 250000 And of course, they have these deposit exchange programs where even community banks can offer a lot more. So, so there are a lot of ways where you can get more coverage than that already. Um, but I do think you need some market discipline, and I certainly think ultra-rich venture capitalists should, should be expected to know what you know kind of bank they're dealing with and what kind of risk that bank is taking, and not you know then then all of a sudden close the bank, uh, which you know it might have it was mismanaged, but I think it still has some good assets and a fairly valuable franchise. If it hadn't been for the deposit run, I think they could have made it. So it, it was somewhat self-destructive. Um, but I do think there there should be a deposit insurance limits. I, I think there is an argument for uh, unlimited or at least higher limits on transaction accounts because with transaction accounts, we saw this uh, during the crisis with community banks in particular, they were losing their business accounts, their institutional accounts that were used for payroll and operational expenses. They have to go above their insured deposit limits, right? 250000 isn't going to give you enough you know, liquidity to to manage your cash flow needs if you've got a, a business organization of any of any size. So the community banks were losing those deposits uh, during the crisis to the bigger banks. And so we instituted something called a, a temporary um, transaction account guarantee. It's a temporary program. We provided unlimited insurance to transaction accounts that did not yield interest that were just used for, uh, for you know, payment processing. And it worked. It stabilized the uh, the deposits in the community bank and uh, and worked very well. And much to my surprise, <laughs> then the the uh, Congress. I'll be I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think this is through lobbying of the of the money market industry. And, and if any of you are listening, <laughs> you tell me and shame on you if you're involved. But anyway, Congress uh, ordered the FDIC to not do a program like that anymore without congressional authorization. And then they, they, but they provide a streamlined procedure for it, as I said earlier. So I, I think that's something, if, if we see run pickups, uh, it, it, deposit runs accelerate, that's really something the FDIC should do. And I think if, if Treasury and the President uh, and the Fed supported them, I can only imagine the Congress would be able to give them that authority uh, pretty quickly. So a temporary liquidity program like that, the flexibility to institute something System-wide, I think, makes sense. I, I regret that the Congress took it away from the FDIC to begin with. I think there can be a larger debate about whether we should just lift, at least for transaction accounts, lift uh, deposit limits. I believe Japan does provide unlimited uh, insurance for their transaction accounts. If they did years ago when I was over there and discussing this issue with them. Um, so I think it's a, it's a conversation to have. And who knows, maybe this, this these incidents will help uh, will help precipitate that. Sheila, just as we think about the insured, uninsured deposit, I guess, uh, cap, uh, what about just the mix of uninsured deposits as uh, as the funding profile, of, uh, as part of the funding kind of base of the banks? Uh, should there be a cap on the proportion of yeah. uninsured deposits, let's say as a percentage of total deposits, for at least for the banks that uh, are part of the FDIC coverage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, runnable liabilities are something generally that I believe the FDIC, FDIC looks at in setting its risk-based premiums. But, you know, maybe more, I think the, you know, the change, the adjustment in premiums is not great. So maybe that's some, that would be one way to do it, to just charge very, very high premiums for, for banks that have, uh, you know, it, it run, what I would call runnable liabilities. Even even retail, even insured can can. Can, can run if uh, if it's all just based on yield, and that we certainly saw that with these rapid growth uh, banks 
during the great financial crisis, they were fairly new banks and they'd just gotten broker deposits and, and levered up on commercial real estate. And that turned ugly pretty fast. So maybe we should think more about runnable liabilities. But that is already factored into deposit insurance premiums, I believe, that maybe should be more explicitly so. And yeah, I think the percentage of, of um, uninsured deposits by themselves are not bad. They're good. I mean, you know, businesses with large accounts need, need bank accounts too. So you want to uh, attract that business, but uh, but maybe some some thought about uh, putting putting some uh, standards around the mix is a good idea, or at least you know do more to to adjust premiums for insurance deposit insurance. You mentioned deposit exchanges in this regard. Could you just ex- explain a little bit more how you think these deposit networks like Interfi um, can play yeah. a role in in distributing deposits among banks according to these insurance limits? Right. Well, to be honest, I've never been a fan of those. I, th- I, 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 I'm glad that they provide they help make the uh, the smaller banks more competitive with the the bigger, you know, so-called big to fail banks. But it, there is, it's a bit of a free ride on the FDIC's uh, deposit insurance fund, and so for that reason, um, I think I, I'm troubled by it. I think you know if we're going to have those programs, that we better they should be frankly they should be paying a fee to the FDIC too because it really is just a <laughs> it's just a free ride <laughs> on the deposit guarantees that that that, that the government and the, well, the the the, uh, the actually the banking system provides because the banking system capitalizes the deposit insurance fund. But they're here; they're here to stay. I don't think they're going anywhere. I mean, ironically, if if we did limit, uh, you know, raise deposit insurance caps, and that would probably kill that industry off. So um, there, that's something to think of as well. Um, but I guess I can live with them. I, I do think they should pay something uh, to the deposit to the FTIC because it's pretty much a free ride. Understood. How do you feel about the um, the current capital treatment for securities held on banks' balance sheets? Now that interest yeah. rates have moved higher, some U.S. regional banks have, you know, implied marks on their held maturity securities portfolios in excess of tangible common equity, and this must be a problem. I mean. Should there be a change to the capital policy as it relates to yeah. marking to market bond portfolios and or the treatment of AOCI and regulatory capital? And similarly, do you think the, the solvency risk implied by these securities books, as evidenced by the recent bank failures, are adequately considered in RWAs in terms of their current asset risk weightings? Yeah, well, you, there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> a lot to unpack. In yeah. So I think securities that are in AFS should be marked, period, full stop. I don't, you know, I think with, with holds of maturity, I, I think maybe not because um, these are somewhat un, unusual times, right? So, I mean, the Fed's increased interest rates from 0.08% at the beginning of, to uh, just north of four and a half now. So that's about, I figured it out, it's about 6,000% increase. So th- this this is extremely rapid, uh, you know, four and a half by itself doesn't sound high, but in relation to where they started, this has been highly aggressive. So I think we are in, in unusual times making this more of an issue than it ordinarily would be. Uh, certainly anything in AFS should be marked. If HTM, I can debate it both ways, but if they don't make them market, then, then it's part of the supervisor process at least. Examiners should be looking to see if they had to sell them what would the hit of capital be? I also think that just generally, you know, the, the regulatory incentives that regulators give banks to buy government-backed securities are pretty powerful, right? There's zero risk weight on treasuries, pretty low on, on GSE-backed uh, bonds and MBS. 
um, you know, there's very favorable treatment under the liquidity rules. So they're they're pretty much treat, treated as zero to very low risk. When really, when interest rates rise, they are not. They are not. So perhaps reassessing uh, the capital requirements. Certainly, what I do hope, and apologies if some of you uh, have pushed for this, but I, you know, there's been a big effort by bank lobbyists in the U.S. to get Treasury securities out of the denominator of the leverage ratio. And I have fought that for years and continue to oppose it. And I hope now at least what's going on here with, with market losses on treasuries will help people understand, you know, it, it is there, there is risk in these as well. And providing even more powerful incentives to load up on treasury securities, which you would do if there were no capital requirements at all, they could use, the, you know, banks could use 100% leverage to buy them then uh, you're really going to see banks piling into that that uh, asset class even more, which I, I don't think is good from a for safety and soundness standpoint. And I don't think it's good from the standpoint of making sure you want banks to take, take some risk, right? <laughs> you want them to lend. <laughs> you want them to invite another, you know, invest in other instruments that help support the real economy. Don't just don't want everybody piling into government. So, yeah, I think there's... That's uh, a great... No. Please, go ahead. No, I didn't want to... You, you go. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Well, no, I just think that that's, that might be, you know, some silver linings coming out of this, and, and this may be one to just reassess the regulatory treatment of, of government debt. And uh, is it is it favored too much over, you know, private sector uh, credit credit provision, which which I think it probably is. Really good point on leverage. I just wanted to catch you up on the AOCI question. Um, the option for non-systemic banks to included or not in regulatory capital, do you think that right. that should that option should be, uh, uh, you know, uh, clawed back? Eliminated, yes. Yes, I think that should be eliminated, yes. Let's, um, um, maybe, maybe it's a good time to kind of just uh, now move to a different topic, think about the near and longer term kind of implications. Um, I guess the question I want to ask is what, so what happens next? Will the big banks just keep getting bigger? Is there going to be higher insurance premium, stricter regulation? Is that going to be punishing to the smaller banks disproportionately? Yeah. yeah. Now, will all of this mean more bank mergers maybe in the U.S. banking system, more consolidation? You know, you know after what yeah. we've seen over the last number of days, does anyone want to put any money in small banks? You know, when the big banks basically well, offer no, the same... A, it's, no, it's a, it's yeah. a really good bailout. Bailouts encourage uh, big banks to get bigger because the bigger you are, uh, the you know it, you were bailed out before, you're propped up. You have this too big to fail a perception, which is what you know the largest banks in the U.S. enjoy now. And you know, again, with what's going on now, I'm just wondering: so are we lowering that to 100 billion dollars? Anybody over 100 billion now? Is that is that going to be the market exception uh, expectation that those are going to be designated systemic and they're uninsured are going to be protected. So if, if you create that market expectation, it's definitely going to hit the smaller banks. I mean, why would anybody keep uninsured money with them if if they, you know, we have a reason to believe that the FDIC is always going to protect the uninsured and the larger banks. So it's, it's, it's uh, which is why I think I don't like bailouts, period. But if you need to do them, do them for everybody, because if you don't, if you pick and choose, you're going to you're, you're going to be distorting depositor behavior. You're going to be punishing healthy banks that didn't do anything wrong, and uh, and so uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, don't do bailouts. If you have to do it, do it for everybody. Just don't. 
which is institutions or certain size institutions to help. Well, these these bailouts, broad or narrow, cost the banking center uh, sector. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could detail what what are the expected costs? What are the social dividends, if you will, to yeah. be paid by banks as yeah. a result of this latest um, bailout in terms of, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about higher insurance premiums. I'm thinking about stricter liquidity requirements, certainly higher capital requirements eventually. And then right. if you could also uh, just, if, if this, if there's a cost to banks from this, what proportion would you expect to be passed on to bank customers? versus bank yeah. shareholders. Well, I, 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 I get concerned about that, too. And it gets back to, that, you know, is this an unusual kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a handful of banks with these, these types of characteristics, or is this a broader problem? If it's just a ma- matter of, of bad interest rate risk management by a handful of banks, I, you know, bringing down the hammer on everybody, I think, is, is – uh, and I think it is, frankly, bringing down the hammer on everybody is just not really going to be productive. And so the this gets back to the question, well, this is systemic, right? We've got to go after everybody. If this is all deregulation, we deregulate the, the mid-sized banks, we've got to re-regulate them again. Then uh, then I think there's, there's going to be some, um, yeah, I think there's going to be some significant increase in regulatory costs. And I hope that doesn't happen because from what I can tell now, you know, I'm learning every day like everybody else, but what I can tell now the regional banks and the community banks are in pretty good shape. Uh, but, but, you know, regulation has worked. And, uh, and you know, you also pile on rules on banks when maybe examiners miss something. So, you know, or in bank management, so there's got to be some personal accountability here. Sometimes people just make mistakes, and we all make mistakes, and we hopefully will, you know, hold ourselves accountable and correct our mistakes, but for, you know, human ear, if you will, you know, lapses in judgment or whether or oversight, to use that as a catalyst for a whole new layer of regulation, that's not a great idea. It would be a very, very bad outcome. Uh, We've talked about some discrete areas. Um, Capital treatment of unrealized losses is one, so there are some discrete areas where I think we could improve regulation, but um, Overall, I, I think the system is, uh, is, is for the smaller banks uh, and the regional banks. I think it's fine. I before this, I was worrying way more about the non-banks and their interrelationships with the largest banks. Uh, there's not a lot of transparency there. We know these funds, these private funds, use a lot of leverage. Uh, nobody's quite sure what their exposures are. And so, uh, you know, somebody asked me earlier at another uh, session, you know, what's the next shoe to drop? And I hope there are no <laughs> next shoes to drop. But if there were, I'd be looking at the non-bank sector because certainly they are dramatically impacted by the Fed's rapid increases in interest rates. And who knows how they may have been papering over that for now because, you know, we just there's just not a lot of transparency around them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's real danger, and I think it's uh, uh, important for people to be aware. Of, you know, and, and I've been trying to tell people since this started. I certainly my confidence in the regional bank sector. I think traditional regional banks perform very well during the financial crisis. They're performing well now. They're 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 for the most part they're well managed. They've got diversified deposit bases. A lot of heavily reliant on core deposits. Uh, there really isn't something that uh, there's there's no broad based problem that that uh, depositors should be aware of when it comes to regional banks. 
Sheila, we have uh, we obviously have clients uh, on the line and present kind of beyond the uh, the the borders of the U.S. Uh, you know, many of us, I as a Canadian bank analyst, we would always kind of think about well, what 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 are some of the potential ripple effects of this beyond right. Uh, right. the U.S. Uh, I guess regional banking uh, space. You know, what what sort of stuff do you think we should be thinking about, worrying about? Yeah. Um, well, we've talked to, we, we, I mean, I think their, their political risk, you know, the kind of backlash risk from all of this um, is is uh, uh, going to be a problem. Think, look, look, interest rates generally, you know, uh, interest rates go up, interest rates go down. And so independent of any drama around SVP and signature, uh, obviously deposit costs are going to go up. <laughs> you know, you're, it's just getting more competitive for money out there. So you have to start paying more interest on on banks. Are going to all banks are going to have to start paying more interest on their deposits. So that's going to compress uh, that interest margins. Uh, we may well have a recession coming. I hope we don't. Uh, I think I have said uh, since last December. I've said the Fed should uh, hit pause on their interest rate increases because it's just been they've done it so quickly and so dramatically. They really need to take a deep breath and assess. Um, What's the impact? It's not just on the financial system, but the economy generally. Um, so there's uh, there's that. And uh, if we do go into a deep recession, obviously your credit losses are going to go up significantly. I, I think and hope that can and will be avoided. But that's certainly something uh, in terms of uh, your forward thinking of, of, of banks and those who analyze banks. You know, how resilient are they in that kind of a scenario? Um, that said, I mean, higher interest rates long term are good for traditional banks to take deposits and make loans. This era of cheap money, it was really, really hard to get a decent return on your lending. Meanwhile, if you're an investment bank with large securities portfolios, you were you were fat and happy. <laughs> you had a lot of corporate debt issuance and they, you know, they played the financial assets you held were, were going up in value. So that was a good ride, but it, it's, it's unwinding now. But for traditional banking, it, it's better to have high interest rates. You know, your your margins are better, capital allocation is more disciplined. You can get some decent return on on you know your loan. Maybe you can take a little more risk with some loans, and you know, taking a little more risk for small business or whatever is not necessarily a bad thing if it's done right. So um, yeah, I think short term uh, rising interest rates are going to certainly get an impact. Uh, Increased deposit costs, that's something for everybody to be aware of. And, and the risk of recession is also something to make sure you're prepared for. But uh, I do think if the Fed hits pause, assesses, uh, takes a breather, let's, I mean, you know, housing inflation has been such a big component of these numbers. And there's a lag, as you all know. And when, you know, the uh, ha- housing corrects and gets into the inflation data. So I think that's what, another reason why it would be good for them to hit pause. Um, and if they wanted to tighten further instead of raising short-term rates, I guess, if, if housing doesn't cool off, they could sell some of the mortgage-backed securities. You know, that would at least be targeted to the housing sector. And uh, certainly it would take it would hit uh, MBS valuations even more. But now that the Fed has this facility where you can you can bring those securities and borrow against them for full value, uh, maybe that's, that's less of an issue. Um, I mean, that's just hypothetically down the road, if if, inflation, if housing inflation isn't coming down, that would be another option they would have without raising short-term rates, which really is putting such pressure on the yield curve. And um, and 
it presents much greater risk. Uh, well, it hits the entire economy. It hurt, hits credit costs everywhere, and it and particularly uh, increases recession risk because of the inverted yield curve, which imperils labor markets. So um, hopefully they can hit pause and, and see, let this flow through, and we can see uh, continued uh, uh, progress on inflation, and all will be good. But if, if not, I really wish they would think about selling some of their portfolio instead of keeping, to raise, uh, keeping on raising short-term rates. Last I checked, um, no buyers have emerged yet uh, for the the banks that have failed. Why do you think that is? That's troubling in itself. I don't know. That is troubling in itself. I I don't don't know. I don't have insight into that. Um, I I don't know. Um, And I'm not even going to speculate. It's surprising because we had, you know, we those franchises. It it seems to be well. Okay, I, I won't. Speculate, but I, I will make an observation. Um, there were, under the Obama administration, Justice Department, um, there were some lawsuits brought against banks that had bought failed banks from us, basically holding them responsible for the bad conduct of the banks that they had acquired. I disagree with that then. I disagree with it now. I publicly criticized it. And I said then, and I'll say now, that 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 doesn't does nothing but to give um, bank bidders a disincentive to buy failed banks. So, if that turn, and I don't know, I don't know if that's a factor. It would probably be good for this administration to announce that you know you're going to have be held or put it in paperwork too for the acquisition that you'll be held harmless against any uh, you know uh, civil or criminal liability associated with the, with the bad conduct of of the uh, the bank management. Uh, that you've just acquired. Um, there may be, like, it, it may be uh, some of the drama has got people skittish too around all of this. Um, I think these things generally went more smoothly when you do them quietly and then just announce the transaction. So that might be scaring people off too. I don't know. I'm just, um, it, it's hard to tell. Uh, but I, I, I hope this is not uh, an indication that People are going to be reluctant to buy. Um, I do think that private equity has a role here. We allowed private private equity to um, acquire banks. Well, if you're going to acquire the whole bank, you have to have a bank to acquire a bank. So we, if they if they formed, they tra- got a, a banking charter and got approval from their primary regulator. Most of them got national charters. We allowed them to bid on failed banks, and then we put some special rules around it, lock-up periods and higher capital requirements for a certain period of years, just, you know, because, just because they didn't have a track record. And that worked pretty well. But I do think, uh, you know, private equity's got a, a role in this, and because uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're distressed asset buyers. These are viewed as distressed institutions. They are somewhat, even though I think they've got a pretty good book of assets. Um, you need to let them come in and compete, too. And there are ways you can put safeguards around that to make it to make sure that the FDIC is dealing with uh, responsible buyers. Sheila, one of our clients uh, over the weekend uh, reminded me. He said that uh, we know banks die of uh, cancer in their loan book, but it's a heart attack yeah. in their treasury operation. And uh, <laughs> That's exactly clearly, right. it's uh, so it clearly was that. And here and right. We've talked about some of the changes that have to come through. I'm just curious, you know, obviously there were learnings that were had out of the global financial crisis, but there was a decision uh, to be uh, to apply those kind of uh, 
at different degrees of strictness, depending on the size of the institution. Are we, uh, two questions, I suppose, are we going to see tighter or harder uh, liquidity and funding type constraints on the smaller banks that were not, uh, you know, uh, bound by the NSFR and LCR type stuff that came through? And then is there a chance that uh, the globally systemically important ones, the larger ones may also just as a result of this, for whatever reason, see higher um, supervision as well? Well, I, I think there will be higher supervision. That's not necessarily bad. I mean, obviously, every examiners and managers of all sizes of banks need to be hyper-focused on the liquidity right now, given just what's been going on. Um, and again, you know, not all small banks are virtuous, not all middle-sized or large banks are, are virtuous, but, but but the traditional community bank is going to be have that slope. They're going to have a loan book. They're not going to have huge securities portfolios. Maybe some of them have now. They, well, I will have to admit they, they've loaded up. I mean, it was just there's so much money in the system uh, that uh, the Treasury securities have uh, uh, for for all bank sizes have those holdings have have uh, gone up quite quite a bit. But there again, with, you've got this Fed facility now to help them access liquidity. They're going to need it. Um, so I, I I I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be okay, but I think banks of all sizes appropriately need to be focused on liquidity uh, and examiners need to be too. And that can be thoughtful and constructive. It doesn't need to be uh, punitive or harsh, but it it certainly needs to happen. Among among the financial systems globally, there appears to be an inverse relationship between competition and stability. And inarguably – the U.S. banking system with its 5,000 banks is more competitive than its international peers. Does that mean that it is also inherently less stable? Are are these U.S. bank failures just now now a fact of life, or should the regulator push for consolidation to become more stable as a system? Yeah. Well, that's that's more the Canadian uh, system, and, you know, I can argue it both ways. The Canadian system is very stable, and uh, and you've never had a major banking crisis. The U.S. banks will tell you that, that the Canadian banks free ride all of us innovators <laughs> in the U.S. So that's, not, that's what they say. That's not what I say. So uh, <laughs> I think that the truth is, is, is probably somewhere else. But, um, like, it's a trade-off. I do think a principles-based approach. I, I do think that regulation is, is too prescriptive, too rules-based, and, and it's inflexible. It, it, it's, it's not dynamic. It can't respond to trade, you know, changing conditions and risks the way a more principles-based framework does. And I will also say that I think I haven't dealt a lot with Canadian banking regulators. I worked with them a lot uh, during the financial crisis and on the Basel Committee um, and and know some of them and know people who who work with them. But just my sense is, and maybe it's because you just, you know, you have a concentrated banking system you don't have to go through these formalities of rulemaking and et cetera. I mean, if you've got a concern, the reg, you know, the bank supervisor or the regulator in Canada has a concern, they pick up the phone and call the bank and work it out, right? And I think, you know, that's the way it used to work in Paul Boker's days. And I, I think now, for whatever reason, bank regulators don't feel empowered to do that so much. And, you know, if you think a bank needs new capital, you got to do a rulemaking for everybody or put out guidance or something. Or just pick up the phone and call them. So, but, but my sense is you have more of that ongoing dialogue uh, between Canadian regulators and the banks that, that we, don't, we don't have see the same kind of uh, ongoing uh, interaction as before. 
but you know, I, I think there are, there are real strengths in our banking system. I, I like the fact you don't have community banks. I like the fact you have community banks. I, I bank with a community bank. I also have an account with a large bank because for wires and, and some things, community banks aren't, aren't able to provide the same level of service. But I think that diversity of choice for the people in the U.S. is important. Uh, and uh, But, yeah, that means it's, it's harder to supervise them, harder to regulate them, and, and you have more bank failures. Uh, but banks fail. I just wish people wouldn't. It seems like, you know, we we had such strong education efforts with the FDIC about deposit insurance and protections, but people just always seem to be surprised. <laughs> I'm not sure why, or a bank of any size. Uh, but it happens, and uh, you need it. If you want any kind of market discipline uh, to complement regulation, you need uh, the possibility of bank failures. And uh, regrettably, I think we've lost a lot of that with our biggest institutions now. Look, it's uh, 3.15. We've come up against our time. Uh, we want to be respectful of uh, your time and the participants. Sheila, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights and uh, really reassuring thoughts on the current situation. Um, for those of you who don't know, Sheila is also an author of children's book, Teaching Personal oh, Finance to Young Readers. <laughs> I know that Brock and Saving Shock, that's been a hit in the Fotheringham household, and I I know I can't wait to see how this latest crisis features in the next book. Um, look, uh, a big thank well, you to our clients for participating in today's call. All of us at BMO Capital Markets, especially James and I, appreciate your uh, business and trust in involving us in your process. Uh, thank yeah. you, everyone. That's, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein.
BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.